Hey everyone, Ray here. If you've been with me for any amount of time, you know that history isn't black and white, not even close. So why is it presented that way? The podcast Gray History, on the other hand, is quite comfortable in the gray, and it is dedicated to exploring the ambiguity and nuance of the past. The current season is the French Revolution. I think we can all agree, one of the most monumental eras of our shared history. Gray History, of course, covers the event, but more than that, it compares and contrasts the different experiences and perspective from several participants, contemporaries, and historians. If you want to better understand today, you have to properly understand yesterday. And here, that means the French Revolution, with all of its complexities and contradictions. Hold on, because this show, it's addictive. Not just because of the monumental event, but because it's so well-researched and balanced. And it's recommended by universities across the globe. And there are 50-plus hours waiting for you, and it's still going. For an epic journey of one of history's most important events, check out Grey History, the French Revolution. That's Grey with an E. The following episode is on the French Revolution, so it's focused on laying the groundwork for what comes next. What will happen to King Louis, his family, and his country? Welcome to the very first episode of Grey History. Grey History is a history podcast dedicated to retelling the great historical events tales, epics, triumphs, and tragedies of our species. But more importantly, it's dedicated to exploring a fact that is becoming increasingly forgotten in today's society. The fact that history is not black and white. Grey history seeks to explore the grey, all 50 shades of it, and in doing so seeks to question the why, reassess the what, reconfirm the who, the how, the when. In short, this podcast will explore the official record of events while emphasising the voices of the minority, the overlooked and the ignored. Why? Because it's in highlighting dissent and contrasting conclusions that we can find the grey. And it's in the grey that history has its beauty, its intrigue, and most importantly, its lessons. The first historical tale that grey history will explore is the French Revolution. Why? Well, because it's got a little bit of everything. Don't believe me? Well, let me put it to you this way. If you like action movies, this is the kind of story that has bloody revolts, coup d'etats, international conflict, and even religion-inspired civil war. If, however, you're more into thrillers, well, this is the kind of story that has treasonous plots, unpredictable trials, daring escapes, and political scheming that makes House of Cards look like a picnic. If you're into drama, or something a little more scandalous, perhaps... Well, this will be a story littered with rumoured affairs, hedonistic acts, and even state-sponsored pornographic propaganda. That's right, forget the Russians of 2016, it's the Prussians of the 18th century who really know how to undermine an adversary's domestic politics with a juicy scandal or two. Of course, nowhere in this whole synopsis have I mentioned the T-word, the terror. That, in and of itself, is enough of a reason to come along for the ride. Best of all, despite being known for producing the tricolour flag, the French Revolution is an event that produces a lot more than three colours. A lot more than three perspectives. Not only can no one seem to agree on its impacts, but it seems that no one can agree on its causes or even its events. A perfect starting point for a podcast with a mission to emphasise differing opinions. 
To explain the events of any historical happening, you need to take the time to explain the status quo, the lay of the land. And that's exactly what the first two episodes will be doing. For the French Revolution, explaining the status quo is even more of a necessity because, say, unlike ancient Rome or World War II, the basics haven't been covered for me by some great HBO television series. What do I mean by this? Well, let's say I wanted to explain the story of Spartacus's revolt. Most people know that ancient Rome had slavery. Most people know that ancient Rome had gladiatorial games. Most people have had the pleasure of watching Russell Crowe state that he is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, and the loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius. What this means is that if I want to explain to someone a story about a slave gladiator who led a revolt which scared the bejesus out of Rome so much so that they literally built a wall across the Italian peninsula, I can jump right into it. A combination of Hollywood, popular culture, high school education, and perhaps even some pub trivia have laid the groundwork for me. As a quick aside, if you haven't heard Russell Crowe state that he is the father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and someone who is intent on getting vengeance in this life or the next, may I suggest you dabble. You'll thank me later. Anyway, we digress. The point is, is that, say, unlike World War II or ancient Rome, where the groundwork has been laid for me, the French Revolution is a very different kettle of fish. Hollywood and popular culture, high school education even, none of these things have lent me a helping hand, and as such, I've got to cover what the status quo looked like on the eve of the French Revolution. So, in this episode, we're going to cover French society, from the priest to the peasant, from the sovereign to the slave, and in the next episode, we'll blitz through two centuries of French history, focusing specifically on the reigns of Louis XIV and XV, or alternatively, the Sun King and his complete and utter disappointment of a successor. After that, we'll be ready to roll. We'll slow things right down, and we'll get this narrative going with the ascension to the throne of King Louis XVI and his decision to get France involved in the American Revolutionary War. So, with the agenda set, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 1, The Three Estates. I want you to imagine yourself standing in the middle of a stadium. A 100,000-seat stadium with 100,000 people in it. Now, to help with the visualisations, Madison Square Gardens, that's got a capacity of roughly 20,000 people. Yankee Stadium, just under 60. Wembley Stadium, 90. I'm asking you to imagine a significant stadium, one roughly double the capacity of the Colosseum and approximately the same capacity as that dust bowl of a stadium on Geonosis. The reason why I want you to imagine a stadium with 100,000 people and 100,000 seats, and specifically those numbers, is I'm going to use this stadium to emphasise the huge differences between the three key social groups of old regime France. These differences were dramatic in terms of both population and wealth, and the people and seats inside this stadium will illustrate just how substantial and disproportionate those differences were. In fact, 
the words substantial and disproportionate probably aren't punchy enough to reflect just how divided French society was prior to the revolution of 1789. The division was so great that it would literally be the first thing you noticed as you stood inside this stadium. Sure, you might eventually notice the different sponsors or the outdated fashion or the abundance of yellow vests, but undoubtedly the first thing you would notice in this French stadium of ours is that it is structured in an incredibly odd way. The distribution of seats and people is completely out of whack. Two large seating areas are completely sectioned off. Collectively representing about a third of the stadium's seats, these two sections are the best seats in the house. Yet despite their prime location, these seats are almost empty. In what appears to be the two members' zones of this stadium, the amount of unoccupied seats is shockingly high. And this is really odd considering the general admission the rest of the stadium is packed. People are sitting on each other's laps, they're sitting in the spaces between aisles. It's clearly this area that is containing all the missing people. This odd seating arrangement between two sectioned off and underpopulated member stands, these two exclusive clubs, is reflective of France in the 1780s. It's the outcome of France's feudal society. Feudalism structures society around relationships derived from the holding of land in exchange for service or labour. More simplistically, it's a system based on contracts. In the case of France, the king gave nobles land in return for military service, and the peasants gave their local noble their military service and some of their produce in return for their lord generously letting them live off that land. Now, if it sounds to you like it sucks to be a peasant, well, you're right on the money. Whether feudalism or the food chain, generally one doesn't want to be at the bottom of a hierarchy. Shit rolls downhill in the 21st century, and gravity was no less effective 300 years ago. The two sparsely populated member stands in the stadium represent the social divisions which were known as orders, or estates. These orders were specifically known as the first estate and the second estate, while the rest of the stadium, the overcrowded general admission zone that everyone was crammed into, that was known as the third estate. Old regime France, that is to say pre-revolutionary France, was broken down into these three estates. These estates were not like classes, but more like castes. Social mobility between them was very limited. Simplistically put, the first estate was comprised of members of the Catholic Church, the second estate was comprised of members of the nobility, and the third estate was comprised of everyone else, from the rich merchant to the penniless beggar. Alternatively, the divisions represented those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These three estates were the foundations of France's social structure in the centuries prior to the revolution. If they sound medieval in nature, that's because they were. Feudalism was the prominent social system of medieval Europe, and France was no exception. The first and second estates were known as the privileged orders, and it's not because of their preferential seating. They were known as the privileged orders because of their preferential status within the old regime. But, as we'll explore now, that didn't mean everyone in those estates enjoyed the same amount of privilege. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. 
You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com Let's take a look at the first order. The first estate was the estate of the Catholic Church and was comprised of everyone from the monks and nuns of the religious orders all the way up to the impressive archbishops and higher clergy. Modern historians estimate that anywhere from 100,000 to 160,000 individuals comprised the first estate on the eve of the revolution. The first estate therefore comprised about 0.5% of the French population, which was somewhere between 26 to 28 million at the eve of the revolution of 1789. For our stadium analogy, the first estate is represented by 500 people out of the 100,000 in sight. Now, if you're thinking about this stadium, you remember that I said the two VIP areas had a small amount of people in them and a hell of a lot of empty seats. It's here that you can start to see that the two privileged daughters were disproportionately wealthy in relation to their size. Despite being only half a percentage point of the population, the first estate owned 10% of French land. That works out to be 10,000 seats in our stadium. Yet those 10,000 seats were being occupied by roughly 500 people. Just a tad disproportionate. So, what did the first estate actually do? How did they justify this ridiculous seating arrangement? Well, besides helping the fallible seek salvation, the main thing the church did was actually help to justify the existence of the king. This goes to the very heart of feudalism. For feudalism to work, the position of the king in society needed to be sacred. Otherwise, what's to stop all the downtrodden peasants from questioning this unfair feudal hierarchy every couple of years? Thankfully, the church dealt in sacred things. With the help of the Catholic Church, the King of France ruled by a notion known as divine right. In essence, the king got to be the boss because God said so. It was his divine right to rule. The monarch was God's chosen leader, according to God's chosen voice on earth, the Pope. As a result, a codependency or an alliance naturally formed between the first state and the monarchy. The priesthood conferred legitimacy on the monarch, and the monarch in turn conferred power to the priesthood. A deal between church and state that can be seen countless times throughout history across a number of societies, cultures, and religions. So, what benefits did the first estate actually get from the French monarchy for helping to propagate this notion of divine right? Well, for starters, an exemption from taxation. The church didn't pay any tax. Instead, it gave a gift to the state's treasury, which was a fraction of what taxation it would have had to have paid if it, well, actually had to pay. Personally, I would gladly proclaim my prime minister divinely appointed if I could get out of paying a tax bill, but alas, that's no longer an option. The church also had the perk of being allowed to levy the tithe, which took from peasants a portion of their produce, roughly around 10%. This benefited the first estate to the tune of about 150 million livres per year, a livre being the currency of the French kingdom. 
Now, lest you think the church was all pray and no pay, the first estate did actually have some duties besides taxing the poor peasants and propping up the not-so-poor king. Many administrative functions were conducted by the church, including schooling, censorship, and the management of charitable programs. In fact, roughly half of the first estate's members were dedicated to secular functions. The other half belonged to various religious orders. So, the first estate did indeed play a prominent role in the governance of the state of old regime France. If there's one thing I want you to remember about the first estate, besides its taxation exemption and its large land holdings, it's the following. The wealth of the first estate didn't always translate into wealth for its members. Remember that unlike the modern class system based on money, these estates were far more like castes, not determined by the amount of gold under the mattress, or in this case, the altar. There was a clear divide between those members of the first estate who came from the nobility, that is, the second estate, and those members who came from the commons, the third estate. While heaven may not have made distinctions based on noble blood, its embassy on the ground certainly did. The higher clergy were the ones that benefited from the riches of the Catholic Church, and these individuals generally came from noble origins. Of the 139 French bishops on the eve of the revolution, all of them came from the second estate. Those commoners who did ascend to the upper levels of the church hierarchy usually were relegated to some backwater bishopric that nobody else wanted. Thus, the perks of the order were focused on this upper crust of the first estate, numbering just a few thousand individuals. One such individual was the Archbishop of Strasbourg. Now, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but listen to this. The Archbishop of Strasbourg was paid a cartload. Nowadays, there's quite a focus on CEO pay. There's an increasing focus on how high CEO paychecks are in comparison to the wages of the common worker slaving away while the big guy lights up cigars with $100 bills. I want you to imagine if that movement had been around 250 years ago. The CEOs of many large American companies are currently receiving a lot of bad press in recent years for being paid 300 times that of their worst paid employee. Now, this is my very first podcast and I don't want to get sued, so I'm not going to name those companies, but believe me, companies like McDonald's and Walmart are feeling the heat and I doubt they're loving it. The Archbishop of Strasbourg had a yearly income of 450,000 livres. That 450,000 livres more or less dwarfed the 750 livres a priest would earn. For those that don't consider math a strong point, that's a multiple of 600 times. 600. But it gets better. That was the minimum wage for a priest. A cure's minimum wage was 300 livres per year. That means our good mate, the Archbishop of Strasbourg, was earning 1,500 times more per year than the lowest paid curate in the first estate. 1,500 times. Here we are in the 21st century, thinking that 300 times is bad. Now imagine how much worse it would look if that bishop was meant to be heading up charitable programs instead of running a profitable business. Oh wait, that's exactly what he was meant to be doing. The Archbishop's income offers a glimpse at the widespread inequality which existed within the first estate. It's for this reason that when you're picturing those 500 people in the membership stand that takes up 10% of our little stadium, don't picture all of them to be a bunch of clergymen in crimson and white robes, covered in jewellery and surrounded by a bunch of nervous-looking altar boys. Sure, the first estate had a lot of land. 
Sure, it had a favourable position in the kingdom. Sure, Catholicism dominated the state at the expense of other religions. However, not everyone had a great time at the expense of the commoner. The privileges of belonging to a privileged order were limited to a privileged few. The majority of the clergy weren't much better off than those that they lived and preached amongst. That division within the first estate will be an important reality once the sparks start to fly. The second estate was the old regime's other privileged order, and like the first, took up a huge proportion of French land in relation to its size. Historians debate just how many members of French society came from the second estate, with some suggesting the group numbered between 350 to 400,000, while others have suggested that it could have been half that. Depending on the figures you use, the nobility represented somewhere between 1 and 1.5% of the French kingdom. Like the first estate, they owned a significant amount of property. Roughly one-fifth, or 20% of French land, was occupied by this order. So, to put that into perspective, if 500 people from the first estate are occupying 10,000 seats, then 1,000 people from the second estate are occupying another 20,000 seats. Like the first estate, a significant but by no means only privilege the second estate enjoyed was the exemption of taxation. The progressive tax systems that many Western nations have employed in our day and age simply didn't exist. Many of the burdensome direct taxes levied on the third estate were not applied at all to the members of the second. Furthermore, many nobles could also take means to prevent having to pay indirect taxes as well. It would be incorrect to say that the nobles paid no tax, but they certainly paid only a fraction of what we in the modern era would consider to be reasonable. Their justification for this exemption was a simple one. They argued that because they were the order that fought, their true blue-blooded nobility should exempt them from paying taxation. Considering that they were the ones off dying for the kingdom, they shouldn't have to pay for it as well. Of course, that suggests that only nobles fought in wars, but again, logic wasn't the medieval world's forte. In short, the nobility, like the church, paid very little tax. The perks didn't stop there. Only members of the nobility could be appointed ambassadors, hold the highest offices in the church, and command the regiments of the king's men in the armed forces. Some nobles had access to many other rights too, particularly the rural nobility. Known as signorial Jews, many rural nobles laid claim to a collection of bespoke and at times baffling rights which could include a monopoly on the bread oven of the village, a monopoly on the presses to process olives and grapes, and the ability to enforce levies on basic things like marriage or the transferring of property ownership. These were just some of the many privileges that the second estate enjoyed. Unsurprisingly, these same privileges would act as a giant bullseye for angry commoners in the coming chaos. Starving peasants and monopolies on the village bread oven don't often mix well. But before you think everything was sunshine and rainbows for the second estate, don't. It would be an error to think everything was dandy for every single member of this order. Like the inequality throughout the first estate, to assume that all members of this order were rich would be incorrect. Many of them certainly were, but there was gross inequality within the second estate. Roughly 5,000 noble families, predominantly rural gentry, couldn't even afford a horse, a dog and a sword, the traditional requirements for any good noble. 
Furthermore, roughly 60% of noble families lived in conditions similar to their bourgeoisie neighbours, that is to say, their middle-class neighbours from the third estate. In other words, nobility wasn't always the luxurious lifestyle of the rich and famous. Some were only surviving. I use that term liberally because of the ancient privileges they had inherited. If they didn't have those privileges, these nobles would be little more than poor members of the middle class. Material possessions weren't the only factor that divided the nobles, however. Blood did too. Nobility, of course, was meant to be hereditary and passed down from one generation to the next. If you think about what it means to be a noble, the number one requirement was that you're meant to have noble blood. You're meant to be genetically superior to the common man. And this genetic superiority was meant to give you greater courage, greater intelligence, greater everything. And that's what justified nobles having such a prominent position in the army and the government. Therefore, one would assume that joining the second estate wouldn't be too easy. And for a time, that assumption would have been wrong. In the centuries prior to the revolution, the French monarchy discovered a great source of income, selling government offices to rich commoners. In the two centuries before the revolution, a rich bourgeoisie merchant, or upper middle class merchant as we might think of them today, could purchase an office from the crown and potentially get exemption from taxation or even potentially ennoblement as part of the deal. Of the roughly 350,000 members of the nobility, approximately 50% of them were only ennobled in the previous two centuries. What this meant was the sale of offices had diluted the purity of noble blood. This dilution was a recipe for trouble. The ascension of the plebeians, of the rabble, was greeted with hostility by many existing blue-blooded noble families. They were opposed to the fact that noble blood was being poisoned by the DNA of the commoner. Whether the lords of France or the dark lord himself, nobody likes mudbloods. The new entrants were rich commoners, successful commoners, but commoners nonetheless. This meant that, like the first estate, the second estate was far from homogenous. It was far from united, whether divided along the lines of wealth, genetics, or other factors such as religion or ideology, division was rampant within the second estate. Divided, it was far from ready for a sustained assault on its preeminent role in society. In fact, some of its members were eager to lead that assault on their own divided order. Before we talk about the third estate, I just want to reiterate the favoured status of the privileged orders. Combined, the orders accounted for 1.5% of the population of France, yet they owned 30% of the land. In our stadium metaphor, 1,500 people have reserved 30,000 seats. Surely, that's a recipe for trouble. But it's more than that. These individuals were almost untaxed. They held the highest, most powerful and best paid positions of the government. They were granted exclusive rights which were detrimental to the common man and they were often exempt from the laws which affected the common man. Every aspect of French society was not only designed to protect their share of the stadium, but it was designed to make their share of the stadium better. The best seats, the best beer, valet parking, no lines in the bathrooms, undercover areas, ample legrooms, strippers, caviar, French champagne, the Lord of the Rings trilogy on loop. Pick your poison, name your desire, these seats catered to it. 
The two privileged daughters had everything going for them, or at least that's what commoners thought. As we discussed, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for its members, but from the outside looking in, that's exactly what it looked like. Nevertheless, the two privileged daughters were the status quo which had existed for centuries in old regime France, and indeed medieval Europe as a whole. Despite having existed for centuries, this system of entrenched privilege would be completely dismantled in a matter of years, and the vast majority of which would be completely removed in only a couple of months. When the hierarchy of feudalism was turned on its head, these privileged individuals would be given a choice. Accept the new world order, or fight for the old. Some chose the former, many chose the latter, some even tried to do both. This system seemed to many to be the very definition of unnatural and unjust, both at the time and now. But to understand why it was so abhorrent to the masses, we must understand what it was like for the other 99-0.5%. The third estate encompassed everyone that was not in either of the two privileged orders. As you can imagine, this meant that, like the other two orders, there was significant inequality and division within the third estate. The third estate can be broken down into three rough groupings. Firstly, we have the peasants. Secondly, we have the artisans or skilled labourers. And finally, we have the bourgeoisie. Now, considering France at this point in time was primarily an agricultural nation, primarily a farming nation, let's start with the peasants. Roughly, 80% of the third estate was comprised of members of the peasantry. If that figure seems surprisingly high to you, it's because France at this stage, the latter half of the 18th century, was not as urbanised as you may think. France was essentially still a rural society. If we define an urban centre as one of 2,000 people, only one in five Frenchmen would have lived in an urban centre. Most people would have lived in communities or parishes in rural France with a population somewhere between 500 to 1,000 individuals. The average would have been towards the lower end of that bracket. Most people find it difficult to actually think about what it must be like to live in such a small community. Or at least I do, having gone to a school with 2,000 students, which would have been classified as an urban centre in this definition. To imagine the population that the average Frenchman lived in I want you to think about the London Underground. The trains on the Central, Jubilee and Victoria lines all have a maximum capacity of about 800 people. This means that the morning train for an average Londoner today has more people in it than the average Frenchman had in their community in pre-revolutionary France. That's not a lot of people. France was still very much a rural society and thus peasants played an important role. In the feudal society that France was structured around on the eve of the French Revolution, peasants were at the bottom of the hierarchy, and being at the bottom of the hierarchy is pretty much never fun. In a nutshell, peasants were poor, lived often on small pieces of land that couldn't sustain their family, and had to work multiple jobs in order to meet their tax obligations and feed their loved ones. Land ownership in some regions could be surprisingly high, but generally, regions with high proportions of peasant land ownership indicated that the soil quality was low, cultivation hard, and that the nobles didn't own as much land in the region because they had the luxury of buying better quality land elsewhere. Historians debate just how much French land was owned by the peasantry, but the figure lies somewhere between 25 and 40%. 
So if you're thinking about how the privileged orders represent 1.5% of the nation and have 30% of the seats in our stadium, well, another 30% chunk is owned by 78% of the population. If you're visualising this stadium, we've got 500 people from the first estate spread across 10,000 seats. Then we've got 1,000 people from the second estate spread across 20,000 seats. And then we have 78,000 people from the peasantry crammed into 30,000 seats. I told you that the seating arrangement would be the first thing you noticed. Land quality wasn't the only factor working against the peasantry. Peasants often didn't own enough land to provide for themselves or deliver a significant enough surplus to produce to sell at the market. This was amplified by poor agricultural techniques and understandings. As a result, many peasants were a combination of tenant farmers, sharecroppers and labourers, who also worked for wages or created jobs for sale. Only by conducting multiple jobs could peasants feed their families. So far, the living conditions of the peasants may not sound too dissimilar from the working poor of some of the societies we have today. After all, don't the working poor of America also only own a fraction of the land? Don't they also make up a large proportion of the population? Don't they too struggle to pay their bills and feed their families, having earned only a few dollars an hour flipping burgers or cleaning hotel rooms? Well, that may be true. But we are talking about two very different situations here. And that difference has nothing to do with the fact that one has running water and electricity and the other doesn't. It has everything to do, however, with the taxation burden. On top of all the hardships and disadvantages already mentioned, the tax burden was significant for the peasantry. Anywhere from one quarter to one third of the peasant's produce would be taken from him by the two privileged orders. This could be justified through taxes, signorial dues, and finally the church's tithe. As a result of all of this, many peasants lived in miserable conditions. Many lived in complete and utter poverty. What did this poverty look like? Well, let me quote to you from the diary of Arthur Young. Arthur Young was an Englishman travelling France at the time, looking at, amongst other things, agricultural practices. My definition of travelling France, looking at agricultural practices, involves a lot of wine tasting. But hey, he was a tad more professional. On the 5th of September 1788, less than a year from the commencement of the French Revolution, Young wrote the following about the state of the peasantry. The poor people seem poor indeed, the children terribly ragged, if possible worse clad than with no clothes at all. As to shoes and stockings, they are luxuries. A beautiful girl of six or seven years, playing with a stick and smiling under such a bundle of rags as made my heart ache to see her, they did not beg and when I gave them anything, seemed more surprised than obliged. One third of what I have seen of this province seems uncultivated, and nearly all of it in misery. What have kings and ministers and parliaments and states to answer for their prejudices, seeing millions of hands that would be industrious, idle and starving, through the execrable maximisms of despotism or the equally detestable prejudices of the feudal nobility? Young paints a picture of a people wallowing in desperation and hopelessness. He paints an image like you would see on posters and TV advertisements for charities asking for aid for children in war zones of third world countries. But Young does something more. In his writings, you get a glimpse, ever so briefly, of the political storm that was brewing in France, of the viewpoint of men of letters, 
his attacks on despotism, on feudal nobility, these offer a glimpse of what was to come. Having drilled into you that France was still a rural nation, let me now say that France at this point in time was much more urbanised than many other European states. Eight cities existed with more than 50,000 people, with Paris being the largest, at around 650 to 700,000. It's in these cities that we find most of the members of the second of the three main social groupings of the third estate, the artisans. These craftsmen and labourers lived only slightly better lives than the peasants in the countryside. In normal times, urban workers spent somewhere between 40 to 60% of their income on bread alone. Despite Minister Turgot's attempts to introduce reform in the early years of the reign of Louis XVI, urban workers had few rights granted to them by law. According to a Parisian who worked in the printing press industry, workers, robbed of their ability to choose employers to a large degree, were no better off than the slaves of Algiers or the blacks who are used to work on sugar and indigo on the islands. The islands that this Parisian worker refers to here were the French colonies in the West Indies. We are still in the age of empires after all. Now, we'll talk about what happens to the slaves in the French colonies during the revolution, but I must say that I don't think for a moment that the artisans of Paris were on anywhere near the same level of terrible working conditions than the slaves on the Caribbean islands. Nevertheless, they were still terrible. They lived in cramped districts, could barely afford their living costs, and were treated poorly by both the nobility and the wealthy bourgeoisie they worked for. It's these skilled labourers and artisans that make up the famous sans-culottes of the French Revolution, and this group will be extremely important in determining its direction and its radicalism. Finally, there were the bourgeoisie, or the middle class. Lawyers, merchants, financiers, doctors, clerks, a range of professions made up the upper crust of the third estate. These individuals lived much better lives than the peasants or the artisans. As a result of their lifestyle, their grievances with the old regime were not primarily economic in nature. Instead, the grievances of many of the bourgeoisie at the time of the revolution were social. In the last few decades, the ability of the third's upper crust to climb the social ladder had been inhibited. Once upon a time, the rich members of the third had been able to buy government offices. These venal offices provided the crown with some much-needed revenue, and the bourgeoisie with some much-desired benefits. These offices might have exempted the purchaser from taxation, or more importantly, granted them ennoblement, and thus membership into the coveted second estate. However, in the decades prior to the revolution, these routes to ennoblement had been suppressed by members of the nobility who were seeking to quarantine and protect the exclusivity of their privilege. In short, the road to social advancement had been blocked, and it was this inability to ascend the social hierarchy that would fuel the grievances of the bourgeoisie. Unlike the peasants and the artisans who could not ever hope to enjoy the fruits of privilege, the bourgeoisie did actually have a chance to join the party, if they were allowed to buy a ticket. So, when the rural gentry and the newly ennobled nobility had blocked the way for more to ascend to the second estate, fearing their slice of the privileged pie was under threat, anger amongst the bourgeoisie was the prime result. Historian Christopher Hibbert hits the nail on his head in his book The French Revolution when he says the following. 
Yet most of the bourgeoisie, whether in business or in the professions, manufacturers or merchants, doctors or lawyers, were for the most part anxious to break down the barriers that excluded them from aristocratic preserves, rather than to destroy the aristocracy that had brought those preserves into existence. He goes on to say, The limitations upon the talents of the bourgeoisie, particularly upon those of ambitious lawyers, were to make them the aristocracy's most formidable opponents. In short, according to historian Christopher Hibbert, unlike the peasants and the artisans who hated the entire system of feudalism which institutionalised their misery, the upper crust of the Third Estate only rallied against this unnatural societal structure only once they could no longer partake in its benefits. With their ability to climb the social hierarchy curtailed by the chief benefactors of the old regime, the well-to-dos of the Third Estate would seek to retaliate by instead curtailing the regime itself. Having covered disgruntled bourgeoisie, overworked artisans, suffering peasants, we now have a more complete picture of our French stadium. Combined with the privileged orders, this is what French society looked like at the eve of the revolution. There's more lopsided laws and distorted arrangements to cover, but it's easy to do that as we go along. Instead, it's time to focus on some of the key people who helped to get this revolutionary party started, namely Louis XIV and Louis XV, the Sun King and his dropkick of a successor. After that, in the third episode, we'll tackle the American Revolutionary War and Louis XVI's rise to the throne as we start to get into the nuts and the bolts of the French Revolution and, more importantly, into the grey. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Grey History. Now, if you've liked the show, there's one small thing you can do that will make a big difference for me, and that is subscribing to the podcast. Grey History is just starting out, and I need all the help I can get, so if you've enjoyed the show, please do hit that sexy subscribe button. Once again, thank you for listening, and have a great day.